1: The idea that going through the birth canal is really building your microbiome, it's becoming clear because a lot of the time people born with uh, caesarean sections, for example, they don't have the same uh, microbiome as those that are born natural way.
0: Hey everybody, welcome to Health Theory. Today's guest is Dr. Mahmoud Ganum. Considered one of the world's leading experts on the microbiome, he's published an astounding 400 scientific papers and has been cited by more than 20,000 different papers and other scientists. His work is so foundational to our understanding of the microbiome that he actually coined the term mycobiome, which is probably the perfect place for us to start. So um, Dr. Ghanim, please walk people through exactly what the mycobiome is and how it's different or a piece of the microbiome, I think that'd be really helpful.
1: Great, first uh, of all, I'd like to thank you for having me. It's a great pleasure. So the microbiome, you know, the study of fungus, it's mycology. Okay. That's why we say microbiome, which means it's the myc- fungal community that lives in our body. We know that we have microbes in our skin, in our gut, in our mouth, all over our body. People used to think it's all bacteria. And really, they used to use the term microbiome to refer to bacteria. But in fact, in addition to the bacterial community, we have fungal community, we have viruses, we have parasites. So the fungus there, we call it the microbiome.
0: Yeah, this is something that you don't hear a lot of people talk about, but you've got um, obviously um, microbes, you've got fungi, you've got um, phages, which I know virtually nothing about. And you've got viruses, um, which sound bad. So it'd be <laughs> really interesting to, to begin to understand um, what role each of them play, how they're working in harmony. And then obviously we'll get into dysbiosis where it all goes wrong. And then it'd be great to talk
1: about how we you know, get ourselves into an ideal state. Yeah, I think you bring really very important point because people sometimes think that these microbes living in our God, they live alone. In fact, they are like in a sandbox where kids come together and they start to play. So that's exactly what happens between bacteria and fungus. They come work together to our good or our bad. When they are in harmony, we have good health. While if they become fighting together in a way, then you have a number of health issues and conditions. So in a way, we need to look at the microbiome as totality because all of these organisms, like a garden, they live together there and they interact. And as I mentioned, when they are in good uh, good friendship, good. you can get along with people, you help us. And if not, we are in trouble.
0: Yeah. So seven-ish years ago, let's say, I didn't, I didn't even know the word microbiome. I had never heard of it. I had no sense um, of what it was. And then my wife went through a very profound um, state of dysbiosis. Of course, we didn't know what it was. We didn't know it was dysbiosis. It was really crazy. And through all of this, um, it was really hard to wrap my head around what's going on. And I think that, uh, an analogy perhaps that will help people enter this is once you realize that a forest, like a real forest is sure. below the ground, communicating and sharing resources and withholding resources, treating their own offspring one way, um, responding to something, maybe a far afield in the forest. Um, like a a fungal overgrowth or something by sending sort of toxins that way. When I started hearing about that, it's easy for me to understand it at that macro level where I can imagine the root system, I can imagine the biology of it, if that makes sense. And when I started thinking about, okay, in our gut, it's happening at, at a microscopic level, but is the analogy of the forest communicating under the soil, is that pretty accurate for what's
1: going on in our gut? I really like that analogy. I try to sometimes use the garden in our uh, backyard, but it's exactly the same. Because if you think about it, as you said, we see that bacteria and fungus, they help the roots of a, of a plant, which really allows it to, to have more nutrients and make it grow and give us all the shade we need. Okay? So, so that's the same exactly what happened in our gut. These organisms, they work together. And there are beneficial organisms, such as, let's say, in bacteria, lactobacillus. And there are bad organisms. And for this example, I'm going to give you candida, which is a fungus. The good thing about lactobacillus, it keeps candida under control. Okay? So that's why what we would like to do in the garden or in the forest, for that matter, is try to encourage the growth of the good microbes and try to inhibit the bad microbes. Otherwise, we'll start to have rust and smut and other plant diseases which you see in the forest.
0: All right, so I wanna keep going with this analogy because one thing I've found in my life is once I can imagine the process, the biology of it, I can begin to make far wiser choices because I understand the the chain of cause and effect. So I'd really like to understand better um, at a simplified level, if you had to assign percentages, when we're digesting food, how much of it is the body itself is producing enzymes or whatever, and how much of it is the, um, the garden or the forest of our uh, bacteria, uh, fungi, phages, viruses, like that interplay, they're working together. So that um, if I had to just swing a guess, I would say we're probably in like a an 80-20 or a 90-10 split where your body's doing really very little and then the the garden is doing the rest. Is that pretty
1: accurate? You know, in a way, it depends of what you, on what you are defining. If we are talking about, let's say, we eat something, okay, such as sugar, for example. Our body tries to break it down and this sort of thing. However, the microbes, such as fungus, start to use it and overgrow. But really, when you think about it, what's nice about the bacteria and the fungus in our body is that, let's say we take, you eat a fiber, because I always like to encourage the growth of good uh, bacteria and they love fiber and they break it down our body does not break it down so it goes through our intestine down to the large intestine and then start breaking it down and what they do they produce these metabolites i'll give you an example short chain fatty acids it's basically fatty acids with short uh, chains as, as it says you know and those have been shown to play very important role in supporting our immunity for example also by breaking down this this food and producing some of these metabolites there are a a large number as you can imagine of uh, products are produced you know they also can communicate with our brain remember bacteria also can produce vitamins so in a way we have a factory of chemical factory in fact where we produce all these compounds some of them will affect our immune system. Some of them will help our nutrition, like vitamins. Obviously, this is good in nutrient. Now, if we look at these organisms, when they are in harmony, they really are doing good stuff together, okay? And let me give you an example about this. For When we eat a, a complex carb, let's say, candida breaks it down, and then what it gives, it gives a byproduct, and this byproduct is used by bacteria to produce other byproducts, which can it's really complete the circle where candida can use. So they work together to for their benefit and also our benefit when they are good guys.
0: Yeah, that, that to me really begins to clarify why it's so important to... Um, get that harmony right between the different elements of the microbiome because once you understand that what you're really uptaking into the body is the byproduct of them their balance right so who's in there so if one guy is producing something that is not helpful for us and the other species is producing vitamins for instance it's like okay well clearly if i have bad producer over here and he's proliferating (laughs) and i've got my vitamin producer over here and they don't exist then or they're you know greatly diminished through whatever high stress um, antibiotic use you know whatever bad diet whatever the case may be then it's like well the metabolites that are being produced by the chemical factory like you were talking about they're producing the wrong thing. And so now I'm getting sick. Now I'm fatigued. Now I have mood disorder and a lot of what's being produced is um, what I've heard referred to as a signaling molecule. So it, in understanding all of that, for me, it was like, okay, now I can picture why I need to eat certain things, why I need to avoid certain things, because it comes down to what is the the forest or the garden, what is it communicating? So if it's creating not just building blocks, it's also creating communication elements that say, do this, do that, turn this on, turn that off. It's like, whoa, this becomes a very complicated
1: symphony. Exactly. I think you bring out a very important point, which is the communication. Before, we always thought that our brain tells us what to do now with the microbiome we know there is bi-directional communication it's two-way street here our brain can tell our gut, but our gut also can tell our brain and where they influence each other okay so in a way that's what's happening it's not only just producing as you say product it's the signaling which you mentioned there are of course some ways Uh, where we have cytokines, which some of the immune um, uh, elements like anti-inflammatory cytokines, they are substances that can either be anti-inflammatory, which means they help our body to fight inflammation. And some of them, when, for example, an organism that produces IL-6 or interleukin-6, this is a bad cytokine because it's associated a lot of the time with inflammation. What I would like to have in my body, I want to feed the good microbes so that they grow and they produce effect on our immune system so that we have more anti-inflammatory cytokines. I don't want to have something like, for example, some organism that can produce, I mentioned, remember, uh, interleukin-6, which is a bad guy because when this happens, it could affect our brain, we'll start to producing more cortisol also. And of course, having more cortisol, we're gonna have more depression, for example. So it's really, I like your view is that it's a complex. It is not a simple way. It's like biology. Biology is always complex. Yeah,
0: so um, let's start at at birth. You've gotten into some really interesting stuff around um, autism. So I encountered not too long ago the idea that the the microbiome begins to get populated at birth by going through the vaginal canal, and that becomes sort of the, the seeding of this garden. One, I'd love to understand what the research is showing about autism and its link to the microbiome. And then also, what is that chain of events? How do we go from when we're a fetus, is there any microbiome or is it literally zero and then it becomes populated um, as you go through the vaginal
1: canal? How does that work? Yeah, I think before we used to be to think it's zero, but now there are studies to show, no, even when you are there, there is some microbes. And obviously, it is not a mature microbiome. You know what I mean? As you come out from the birth canal, you get more, and then as you are fed, for example, breastfeeding and whatever, you add more, more variety, And the first few months, you are really building that microbiome. But then after, let's say, six months or something, it becomes more and more stable than when we first start. And the idea that going through the birth canal is really building your microbiome, it's becoming clear because a lot of the time people born with Uh, Caesarean sections, for example, they don't have the same uh, microbiome as those that are born natural way.
0: So it's my understanding that the rate of autism jumps something like 30% uh, if you were born via C-section. Is that accurate?
1: You know, you are touching on an area which I just completed a very big study. So what we did, we wanted to look at uh, autistic kids to try to see is there a difference between their microbiome as well as their siblings compared to their siblings. So we had about 81 subjects, mainly 50-some autistic and the rest their siblings. And we really compared their microbiome both not only bacteria but also fungus because, I, you know, I'm a fungi. I like to look at fungus. (laughs) (laughs) So we found that there is imbalance between the sibling who are healthy and those with autistic. And we found really very interesting uh, uh, data, which I recently presented at the International Center for Autism Research, where we found, for example, the bacteria in autistic kids, they have a reduction in one particular, which is important in breaking down fibers, Okay. And that's why most probably these kids really are very fussy about what eating and they have difficulty gastrointestinal issues like 40 percent up to 40 percent autistic kids have GI issues or gastrointestinal issues. Okay, we also found other organisms, uh, not only with bacteria, but with fungus that are different as well. So now what we are trying to do is try to uh, understand how we can balance these organisms, okay? And it's amazing, uh, both bacteria and fungus play a role in these autistic kids. And one factor, which again, I am now currently doing is we found a bacteria that is able to produce biofilms. Biofilms is like the plaque in our teeth is a biofilm. We have what we call digestive plaque, but we found This this organism really to be also elevated in these uh, autistic kids, you know?
0: That's interesting. I think you're going to have to explain to people why um, biofilms are so potentially dangerous um, because you want to talk about something that scares me. Biofilms scare me. So let me tell you.
1: I did a study in 2016. I looked at Crohn's disease patients and we found that they have imbalance in both bacteria and fungus. We found that they have an elevated level of E. coli, Escherichia coli. They have Sirachia marcisans, which is also pathogenic bacteria. At the same time, we found that there is an increase of Candida tropicalis. And guess what? We, we are lucky because we have in our lab 30,000 different Organisms, so we were able to go get those and put them together. And guess what they did? They formed a big biofilm. So, what is the issue with biofilms in our gut? It's similar to plaque in our teeth. But in the gut, when they form this biofilm, it's like a jello. Just to make people visualize what it is, it's like a jello. And inside this jello, we have little M and M's or little raisins, for example. So these raisins and NMMs are the microbes, whereas the yellow is what they produce. They produce a material called matrix, okay? And this matrix, as if it is like, really, you can imagine, it is very difficult to get into the raisins because of this matrix. You have to dig in and, and take them. So that's what happens in our gut. They go, and on the epithelial cell lining, which you mentioned, they form a thick biofilm. So you, you ask me, so what does that mean? What it means, it covers, first of all, when they are living, these bad organisms, E. coli, Sriracha, as well as Candida living there, they become protected against antimicrobial agents, against our immune system. They are really bad guys. They're working together to start damage our lining, you know, epithelial cell lining. And then, of course, when they do that, they, we are going to have gastrointestinal issues, which we, of course, Crohn's disease is a excellent uh, example. But in addition to causing this harm, also by covering the epithelial lining, we will not have nutrient absorption as well as an efficient way. So we we'll start to have, you know, less nutrients and whatever and all the associated factors.
0: So you can eat but essentially starve to death. Yeah, that that was what was happening to my wife. I can't say whether it was um, due to biofilm or not, but man, it was gnarly. Like she was eating and she looked malnourished. Her hair started falling out. Her nails were brittle. It was crazy. It was super scary. And this was, again, this was back. I had to learn about the microbiome specifically because of what she was going through. So it just felt so impossibly complicated. Now, one thing, um, because she has improved dramatically. But the thing that I will say I keep in my back pocket because she isn't like a teenager who can eat whatever they want. Like she has to be really careful, Careful. which tells me that she still is in sort of a compromised situation. Her garden, too many things have died. There's not enough diversity. So the thing I have in my back pocket is uh, FMT. So the first time I heard about it, I could not believe that fecal microbial transplant was real, that we were – quite literally taking the excrement out of one human and putting it into another. Uh, That just struck me as so terrifying. Um, But it it has shown some real promise. Where is the state of FMT? How often do you recommend people to try it in um, a clinical setting where they're actually helping somebody?
1: I think the most really valuable data we got from uh, FMT is in uh, C. diff. C. difficile, you know, the infection in the gut. And it was amazing. The first time I was in a meeting, scientific meeting, I was listening to a professor from the University of Virginia, and he talked about, he did 76 uh, patients. He transferred them with fecal transplant from donors who are healthy. And lo and behold, they had a huge success, you know. So to me, that was really a good, Proof that by getting the right microbiome, you are going to get rid of those uh, issues. Also, other studies with respect to FMT is, you know, a lot of studies in animals where, for example, they took some uh, uh, fecal transplant from a a slim mouse and gave it to an obese one, and they were able to become, the obese become thin again. You know what I mean? So this is fantastic. Now you ask me a question, where are we with that? And now the trend is, can we get a subset of organisms that we know, like like probiotic type of organisms, that we know they are going to rebalance our gut and help us? And I would say in the coming few years, that would be more the trend than the FMT,
0: meaning we're going to go in, isolate the balanced um, grouping of microbes—the whole thing—the microbes, the fungi, the phages, the viruses—and into something that's pure and isolatable. And we're going to give them to people. Is that
1: exactly exactly?
0: And how that. do we people... place them in? So, if um, FMT, I've heard two ways: one encapsulated, meaning you actually swallow the tablet. And then two, basically, like an endoscopy where you go in and, and sort of—I would—do they start all the way up at the top of the small intestines and, and small then?
1: intestine? Yeah, uh, yeah. What I think is going to happen is a capsule form, but it's not going to have all the organisms that they are going to uh, that we find in in somebody who is healthy. What we are going to do is we are going to identify what are the most important organisms that will be able to maintain, number one, to rebalance and then maintain our microbiome.
0: So and that's, for, for people that don't understand like the difference between, well, that just sounds like a probiotic. So what's yeah. the difference between what you're talking about and a probiotic, even I'm curious, because once it is just the isolated um, living organisms, that sounds to me exactly like a probiotic. So what what's the difference and why? Because The big thing I hear, um, the downside of probiotics is that they don't survive digestion. So either they don't survive encapsulation, so they're already dead by the time you take it, or if it survives encapsulation, it doesn't survive digestion and it gets killed in the stomach and doesn't make it to the actual intestines. So what are the complications there? and and
1: So there are two topics. There are two topics. One topic is what sort of mix we are gonna have first of all you are absolutely right they are like probiotics the difference the difference is you are gonna select certain probiotic strains that will do certain functions with the probiotic uh, don't do before probiotic is a wild West situation really not a lot of information now they National Institute of Health, for example, is putting what we call RFA, request for applications from scientists so that they can put proposals to try to see, okay, are these probiotic useful? What subset uh, and this sort of thing. So I think we are gonna see a better refinement, even though they will be after all, we call them probiotic, but they are gonna be selected uh, strains that, has, that will help us in certain ways. Like, for example, I told you in autistic kids, if they don't break fiber, I don't want to take any old probiotic. I want a probiotic that is able to, like a strain that I would show that it's going to break this fiber. So it's going to be personalized. First, it means personalized and more targeted to a, a given situation.
0: That is very interesting. So now let's talk about what would make up that targeting. So my wife's microbiome just decimated. So what would you give her? Would you give it based on the fact that she's Mediterranean or what? Because you've said that people break into basically three camps. Healthy people fall into three types of microbiomes. It isn't It isn't just every person is completely individualized. There is individuality. But for the most part, people fall into roughly three camps. Would it be just figuring out which of those three camps she should be in? And how do you decide that?
1: this is a really very good question. Why? Because, okay, how do we know? One way now, which is advancement of science and next generation sequencing, we can take a fecal sample and characterize it. We can actually make a profile of a given person. And you are absolutely right. In our studies, we showed that there are at least three different profiles, but with and without fungus, like some, the same profile could be with fungus or without fungus. So you have six in total. And so when you, for example, with your wife, if we can take a fecal sample, we can analyze that. And based on that, you will be able to see what sort of dysbiosis, okay, or what sort of imbalance there. And then based on this, you need to start giving recommendation, nutritional nutritional recommendations that will improve the growth of this, this guy, which we don't have. Like, for example, if you have protobacteria, which is pro-inflammatory or it's a red flag for inflammation, I want to give the person fiber. I want to give them vitamin D3 because this has been shown to reduce that. So you'll start to make, as you say, personalized approaches to the Uh, to rebalance your gut. So I want to
0: go a little deeper on the timeline for the actual personalized um, sort of probiotic 2.0 or 3.0, where we get the fecal sample, we identify where they're at. We identify, and, and I'm not sure how, but we identify what of the roughly six groups they're going to, they need to fall into, and then we create this cocktail for them that they're going to take. And look, trust me when I say I buy into diet hundred percent, I buy into lifestyle a hundred percent. But you've talked about the fact that diet and lifestyle is a change measured in months or even years, whereas the microbiome, the fungi can be adjusted in 24 hours. And I'm also hopeful that with this cocktail that you're talking about, what, what we'll call probiotics 2.0 um, is faster, right? But I really want to understand, are we, are we 10 years away from probiotics
1: 2.0? Are we 10 months away? I don't think it's 10 months away, but I don't think it's going to be 10 years. I really believe within the uh, five year period, we should be able to get more. Look. If you think about that, and our understanding of the microbiome, it's just been maybe just over 10 years, 10, 15 years, okay? So, the first stage, we just wanted to understand what is there. Now, we know also they cause issues. Now, we are entering into the future, which is the more exciting and will be more really relevant to a situation like your wife, where we are trying to understand, okay, how can we balance it? What sort of strain do we need, you know? And I am, you know, I am an optimistic person, okay? And (laughs) because of this, I think we will reach there within the coming uh, five years, I'm sure. So
0: going back to the hot button issue of autism, uh, let's talk about, is anybody doing um, human experimentation with autism and FMT, and if so, what are the results?
1: You know, this, there are a number of companies that are starting to look at uh, autism. And what they are trying to do is trying to see a subset of strains that are going to work against against, uh, against them. But they are in clinical trials. They are not completed. But I think, again, I would expect within the coming three years, we will see, uh, hopefully, uh, some, some of these uh, uh, strains are going to work. And when you say work, do you think
0: that you can have a a partial reduction in symptoms, a total reversal of symptoms? Do you have to catch it by a certain age or does the brain actually develop differently? Um, What do you think that looks like?
1: I think, like for me, where I am going with autism, I can tell you because I've been thinking, okay, how can we do a clinical trial so that at the end of it, we learn something which gonna help these kids. And I would like to focus on the gastrointestinal issues. What issues they have. They have constipation, they have bloating. They have, can we find a set of organisms that are able, gonna help them? Number one, digest the food better. Number two, rebalance the gut, okay? And what I would like to do, I like two things to do. Number one, I really hope we can get a strain that is able to break down fiber. Also, I hope that we have a a sub, it's not going to be one, most probably a handful, not not too many as well, uh, which can uh, help them with respect to their digestive symptoms. So it it has to work this way. Otherwise, it's really not, not worth it. Has anybody
0: looked at, um, so obviously the microbiome is wildly involved in neurotransmitters. Um, Has anybody looked at autism and the neurotransmitters? So if, if there's a correlation or causation between the inability to break down fiber and neurotransmitters, like, I know that um, short chain fatty acids, for instance, if if I'm understanding correctly, certainly lower inflammation, which can have tremendous impact on mood. Um, So have people looked at neurotransmitters in autism and and tried to link that to the microbiome?
1: You know, in autism, it's not as advanced, but I can tell you in Crohn's disease patients, people are looking at it. And in this regard, I was very happy. I got a a National Institute of Health grant, NIH grant to study. uh, oral uh, interactions between bacteria and fungus in Crohn's disease. And guess what we are doing? Apart from looking at the organisms, we also looking at the metabolomics, which is the metabolites production. And what we are hoping is uh, we are gonna, going to identify compounds that are, say, elevated in these, in these patients compared to their con- uh, control or healthy people. And then that is going to give you a large number of molecules to look at and that and some of them may have neurotransmitter effect some of them have inflammatory effect and so on and so forth like in our study for example just to make it put it into perspective when we looked at organisms that when they come together that are pathogenic they we found 299 metabolites detected
0: Whoa.
1: out of these we found eight that are statistically significant. So now we are going to focus on these eight. Now, do I know what they are? What they do? I hope by the end of the five years. <laughs> but that's where, you know, definitely people are looking at the metabolites, and I think this is the second wave. That's where I believe now we are going to move in that direction.
0: So help me understand the... Um... The microbiome in general is, at a microbial perspective anyway, very hard to um, adjust. But fungi can be adjusted, in your book you say, in 24 hours. Yes. One, why is it so much easier to adjust? And then two, what do we hope or what actually comes out of that adjustment?
1: Yeah, I think when I said this, there was a study before where it looked at what you call by Dr. Hoffman where he looked at short-term diet and long-term diet. And when he compared the bacteria and the fungus, the bacterial community and the fungal community, he found that the fungi is a short-term diet, which means on a short time, it can change, okay? Whereas the bacteria, it it is more sustainable. It requires long-term diet. And that's really where the first idea came to us. The other thing... Why is that? Especially if we eat sugar, for example, fungi and the bad guys love sugar, and they grow very fast. In a way, they are, you know, they they are unlike other molds such as Aspergillus or Penicillium, which they take, or even dermatophytes, the organisms that infect our nails and hair, nails and skin. They take very long time to grow. Whereas Candida is very fast, it's like bacteria anyway. So that could account for how very quickly you can populate that, or you can starve them as well at the same time.
0: Very interesting. So as we make the adjustments, we start eating the right diet, we lower our stress, we start working out all that. Um, What, like the mycobiome, the fungus role, what does that control?
1: I think, uh, first of all, there are studies that have shown that the my, uh, my, uh, microbiome play a role in our immunity. For example, and I, I, I remember we gave an example where through metabolites secret- or through, metabol- through uh, they influence the ability uh, to secrete more uh, cytokines. They affect the immune cells to secrete more cytokines. Also, the fungi, if they are overgrow. In this biofilm, which I mentioned before, you know, it's so interesting because if you look at candida, when it is sort of, in a way, harmless, it's a yeast form. It's like oval, little, like we know, with baker's yeast, okay? Whereas when it starts to grow, it forms what you call the hyphae. It's like threads. It's like little uh, thin threads, okay? And this, what they do, they start to break down our gut lining and once you have this breakdown of the gut lining you are going to have leaky gut you are going to have a lot a lot of issues so so that's where candida if it overgrows is not a good uh, idea however i don't want people to go uh, really so nervous about it 50% of us have candida in our gut you know I did a study once with my students many years ago where I wanted to see do they carry candida in their mouth. So I said, okay, guys, let's do this. This is before I became uh, enlightened about the diet. So I said, listen, I need to take a swap to culture candida and I'll give you donuts. Okay, (laughs) And you know, students will will do that. For donuts, they'll do it. So anyway, what, what happened, we found between 50 to 70 percent of the students has candida. As long as it is at low level, it's fine. The problem is when it overgrows. In fact, when it is at low, at low level, as I mentioned before, it could help help us with uh, fermentation, food, food breakdown, and this sort of thing.
0: And the reason that the donut is ironic is that candida is able to consume that sugar and grow and proliferate? Yeah, that's uh, that makes a lot of sense. So that brings us into what are your diet and lifestyle recommendations? So for the person that they they have some level of dysbiosis, which I would say in a modern context, most people probably do. What what does as close to perfect as possible look like?
1: Now, I think uh, our diet has it's a whole food, natural food. It has low in sugar, obviously, because as we've been talking about, we need to have Uh, Mono and polyunsaturated fats. We don't want, we want to avoid the saturated fats. You need some good lean proteins, for example, uh, from plants, also from chicken, from fish is really uh, great. I need to have some food like cruciferous vegetables, for example, for anti-inflammatory, antioxidant. These are really, really good. And also, we need to have fibers, such as resist- uh, resistant starch is very good. Why? Because I want to support the growth of the good bacteria. Because those good guys is like policemen. They keep the other bad guys under control. So that's, a, that's really from the dietary point of view.
0: All right, so just walk me through. You're very specific in your book about what people should eat. Um, what would an ideal day look like? What am I having for breakfast? Am I intermittent fasting? Um, am I, you know, the eating one meal a day, three meals a day, eight meals a day? Like, what does that look like?
1: Let me let me tell you what I do. <laughs> I really uh, now, uh, in the morning, for example, I like oatmeal very much. I love a little bit of honey, not too much because of the sugar, but it's okay and uh, better than refi- refined sugar. So, my breakfast usually is uh, this way it's uh, uh, oatmeal, uh, berries, raisins. I have some prunes, I, I really like, like those. And in the weekend, I enjoy uh, having. Uh, eggs, like omelette, vegetable omelette, and this sort of thing. Now, during the day when I'm at, at work, I like to have you know snacks. I love uh, nuts, especially pistachio. And pistachio, by the way, have been shown to be fantastic with respect to the micro microbiome. Better than almond, even though almonds are good, but pistachios are much better. At lunchtime, I tend to have a salad, and uh, you know, I'm from the Mediterranean myself, like your, your, your wife, and I love, I love salad. And I don't want salad to be too complex. People sometimes add too many ingredients to it. I like to be simple, you know, tomato, a cucumber, spring onions, of course, olive oil, you know, and uh, as well as garlic. Garlic, it is fantastic. And I can tell you I published some work on garlic. You know, it's a very interesting story. If you don't mind, I tell you that. No,
0: please. Okay? I, I know the story. It's amazing.
1: You know, so I was working in Kuwait for many, uh, many years. I was professor at Kuwait University before I came to the U.S. And this Kuwaiti uh, faculty, a friend of mine, he every morning he comes to me, you have to study garlic. I said, go away. I don't want to study garlic. Every day, he said. But then, you know, he's my friend. I say, OK, I'll study garlic. So I did. And I published three papers on garlic. You know, and this is what brought me to the U.S., where they invited me to give a talk on, the, in a conference called First Congress on the Biology of Garlic. And they wanted me to talk about candida. Of course, I uh, I, uh, I was studying against candida. And garlic is a fantastic uh, thing. I'm biased in more than one way. <laughs> so what, I, what happened, I was in England with my family, you know, even though we work in... Uh, I, I'm at Kuwait University, uh, I, I came to England, my wife is English, so we go to England every summer, and then Saddam Hussein decided to occupy Kuwait. So, overnight, I lost my job, and oh my God, we were just one week of going back to Kuwait, you know, to to work, and the, luckily, I already had my visa for the meeting, and they I called them, I said, listen, send me the ticket to England. And that's how I came to the U.S. And, of course, I had uh, a a kind man help me where, uh, gave me, you know, changed my ticket and this sort of thing. And then I ended up uh, getting two jobs uh, in one evening. Again, honestly, I know these days we are all uh, a lot of anxiety and whatever, but this tells you, a fantastic thing about the u.s how people help and how other human beings help you make a lot of difference in your life and that's where my story was Garlic.
0: yeah it's a it's a really beautiful story man i i've heard you talk about it a few times and it's super touching that the the guy was a travel agent if i'm not mistaken it, yes and you'd yes. asked him for help because you were in dc for the conference but you now had to stay an extra week but you had no money this is You know, before PayPal and things like that, so there's no way for you to get a hold of any money. So you go to this travel agent who you've never met ever in your life, and say, look, I have a friend in Milwaukee, but I have to get back to DC if I'm gonna have any hope of getting a job. So can you give me me a ticket to Milwaukee and back to DC, which he does out of his own pocket. It's Um, unbelievable. Yeah, it's really a beautiful story, and I I know, if I'm not mistaken now, you have a scholarship in his name. Um, to, yes. to help pay that forward, which I think is really exciting. Yes,
1: yes, yes. We, we went and we met with his family. Unfortunately, he passed away February of last year. It's a year ago now, and it is really sad. But I tell you, when we saw his family, it was fantastic, and it made me feel so happy. And now we hope, as you say, we pay it forward to, to help somebody else. Because, you know, like... I don't know if I will do it now, but you don't know. When you are desperate about something, I just went to him. I say, "Listen, you are a black guy. You have to help me." <laughs> he said, "You don't tell me what the what the hell is this guy talking about?" <laughs> I said, "Listen, I need help. I, you know." And honest to God, he just did it. It's it's amazing, you know. But uh, you know, this is the good part of the human nature, which we always need to think about and celebrate.
0: You know, I love that. And when you say coming to America, you knew there'd be more opportunity and it didn't matter who you were, just mattered the results that you were able to to get here in America. And um, your life is such extraordinary proof of that. You know, one man's kindness has turned into uh, an exceptional business. Um, Just as I said in the intro, the amount of times that you've been cited um, 400 papers, 20,000 citations, the, the contributions that you've made off of that act of kindness is,
1: is really pretty extraordinary. I tell you, I tell you, that kindness not only changed my life, my family's alive completely, you know. I, we came, uh, when we were in England, I had a little boy, five months, my son, my eldest son, Hafif, he was 10 years, and my daughter, Emma, was seven years. Now they are all grown up. They are all uh, doing well. So, you know,
0: it's amazing. Dr. G, man, thank you so much. This has really been amazing. I want to ask you, um, if people want to connect with you, if they want to get your book, um, where do they go?
1: What's the best place? It's, uh, first of all, they can go to drmicrobiome.com, drmicrobiome.com. That's, we have a site where we are helping people to do some of the stuff. Also, totalgutbook.com, and also it's in Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and all other places. So I really, really enjoyed talking to you.
0: This is amazing, man. If you were going to have people make one change that would have the biggest positive impact on their health, what change would you have them make?
1: You know, I really would like to cut some of processed food. If you can, cut some of the processed food because that's where a lot of the food that can help the pro-inflammatory bacteria grow in our gut. So just veer a little bit to more natural food. Eat, you know, as I mentioned, I am from Mediterranean. Eat some uh, vegetables, eat fruits, and fish, my friend, is fantastic.
0: Amazing. Dr. G, thank you guys so much. Thank you so much. And guys, man, check him out. He's amazing. There's a reason he's been cited as much as he's been cited. Uh, Just an extraordinary thinker who's doing amazing research. Definitely somebody to watch. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be a legendary. Take care.